Well, we have completed most of chapter 3 in 1 Peter. We've really looked at the example of Christ uh, from several perspectives, and Peter has taken us through the historical elements of his provision for us. We're going to conclude that today. Uh, we started with his crucifixion and his suffering, his, what he endured on the cross for us, that he did that, and by the power of the Spirit and rose again, and we saw that relationship between Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, the necessity of that, uh, demonstrated to us that our dependence, as Christ was, is upon the Holy Spirit as well, and we're going to reference him again today, and in many respects this becomes a nice passage to reference our uh, doctrine of the Spirit, of uh, pneumatology. And so we come to, uh, having talked about his resurrection last week, to a portion of it that I've talked about before. We, we referenced this, had a whole message on it when we were in John chapter 16, about the necessity, of a, the emphatic necessity of what we often overlook in that process of our salvation and its provision. And that is the ascension of Christ to heaven. And so let's jump to uh, <clears throat> verse 22 in 1 Peter 3 uh, as a concluding element here in this chapter, uh, but certainly not a concluding element in this portion of Scripture. Remember that we're in a section that's going to take us all the way into chapter 4, verse 6, uh, before we get to the end of this line of reasoning uh, here in 1 Peter. So the chapter division would have been better to be placed after, chap after verse 6 of chapter 4, uh, we have the bookends for us that be, we know when it began, and now we see where it is it's going to end there. But we uh, have this in verse 22. It says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And we come to this element of the provision of our faith, and and I know this is repetitive for you because just a few months ago, maybe over a year ago, maybe two years ago, I don't know, you probably need this more often. Uh, we've talked about the, the necessary nature of the ascension of Christ, that it's not just his work on earth. If it was just that, uh, and we have a resurrected man walking around, uh, that uh, we have some interesting ideas there, we have some principles to follow, but we really still don't have salvation accomplished. That as long as Christ is on earth, that we are in a dangerous situation in terms of ever having uh, true salvation, a completed salvation. We know that if Christ had remained on earth, uh, even post-resurrection in his new life, uh, that we would not have the Holy Spirit within us. And the Bible makes it very clear that it's better for us to be in the condition we are now with Christ in heaven and the Spirit within us than to have Christ on earth walking among us, even preaching to us without the Holy Spirit within us. And that's not my philosophy of it. That is Christ's own words to the disciples in John. It is better for you that I go to the Father so I can send you the Spirit. Thus we are in an advantaged condition 
to the disciples. Why the disciples make such strange comments? Why were the disciples seemingly so clueless as they were taught by the master teacher from heaven had nothing to do with, with the teaching? It wasn't the teacher's inadequacies. It was the disciples' problem. They were not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. And you cannot, by human intuition, by human intellect, ascend to spiritual truth without a lot of help. Now, a preacher can help you to a degree. Okay, we can look at this, and that's my purpose, is to direct your thoughts, but that degree is pretty minimal to what the Holy Spirit can do for us, working within us to turn the light on. Uh, and uh, I find myself frustrated sometimes that I say, well, I've used all the right words to communicate this, and, and you look at someone and they just give you this, and you know they didn't get a word of it, or very little of it, or they don't know what it means, they don't know where, where it's gotten, and they just give you that blank stare, and you're like, oh no, they're still in the dark, they still have no idea what I'm talking about, and uh, not just theological things, just practical things too, and uh, this is what we're doing, I try to explain what I'm doing, and and they give you this blank look because they have no context, they have no experience, they have no way to really uh, understand it. And then they see it and they go, oh, that's what you're doing. You go, oh, the light came on. Spiritual truth, I don't have the capacity to turn the light on for you. Um, that's the Holy Spirit's job. He is the illuminator. And so his presence and his his working in us is that valuable that even if Jesus was your preacher today, and without the Holy Spirit, you'd still be, be in there going, huh? Because that's what the disciples most frequently are found doing uh, prior to Pentecost. That's what the Pharisees did, huh? He tells all these stories. Did you get that? I think he's talking against us. But they really didn't capture the depth and the breadth and the wonder of what Jesus Christ was teaching uh, and it really wasn't until they started remembering after they got the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus taught us this? Wow, we didn't really get it then, but we get it now. Why? What turned the light on? Not their experience. What turned the light on was the presence of Holy Spirit within them. And so to a degree, uh, we, when we pray before we preach or before we read God's word, we are really asking him to guide us into truth, which is what the Bible calls us to do. That that's the Spirit's job. Um, I can direct you to a passage and, and explain it, uh, but without the Holy Spirit's help, uh, I'm not sufficient to that task, and you are sufficient to understand it. And so we are all dependent upon Holy Spirit. And so Jesus Christ was as well. And so we come now to this third step. And this third step involves his ascension. And of course, that is the means by which we receive the Holy Spirit of promise. I go to the Father, and I will send you the Comforter. That was John 16. But let's talk a little bit more about this ascension, that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven, is a necessary element, and should be well celebrated uh, by the church. And again, uh, we uh, did our whole series on times and seasons on Sunday night, and we talked about the the Old Testament uh, uh, celebrations, the, the feast days and, and their purposes, and, and the Day of Atonement, that's the only one that's not a feast days, and we see their connection with various elements, 
And we recognize Pentecost, and we don't celebrate it very well, but we recognize that it is an important one because that's the coming of the Holy Spirit. And really, this should be the culmination of uh, a period of time of worshipful celebration because seven days, seven to ten days prior, depending upon whether Luke meant 40 days after his resurrection or 40 days after his death, that Jesus Christ was on earth. He was engaging with the disciples for 40 days. Um, and, and so for at least a week uh, prior to Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, is the ascension of our Lord. And that would give us a week to really contemplate uh, that time of waiting by the disciples, we talked about this at World Life Club just a couple of weeks ago, as they're reading through the book of Acts, this waiting of the disciples for the coming of the Holy Spirit, whether it's seven days, ten days, we find that they are waiting, and, but they had this event of the ascension of Christ that they witnessed, that as he was blessing them, he ascended into heaven, uh, so he didn't bless, stop, and then go, he was talking all the way up, <laughs> And blessing them as he went up, the Bible says. And so he is blessing them and ascends into heaven of clouds and it is dumbfounding. And they had to be redirected by the, the angels because they still didn't get it. Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. So the ascension becomes a very necessary element. And so we want to look at just a couple other passages. I want to look at three other passages uh, in addition to this to kind of bring these together. So I want to read them, and rather than talk about each one, I want to read them together, and then we're going to really use that body of information to, uh, again, remind ourselves of the wonder and the necessity of our Lord's ascension. And so I'm going to invite you to turn, first of all, to Colossians chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. It says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Now, turn with me to, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2. It says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, 
my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as, it, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And then if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says, I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us by the, your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, have made them kings and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Well, this is not certainly all the passages we could go through and look. And, and I uh, uh, excluded one in Hebrews that I wanted to also in, uh, read. But uh, for time's sake, we're just going to center on these. Certainly all through there, we have the statements of Jesus. We have statements of Paul, Peter, John, all of these, uh, Luke, that all call us to consider the importance of the fact that Jesus is today in heaven. That it is there that the work on earth had to be applied for our salvation to be accomplished. That our understanding of our, of our doctrine of salvation is incomplete if all we focus in on is his death. The cross, the cross, the cross. Is the cross necessary? Yes. His suffering is necessary. It is the key focal point here in Peter. We've seen that, and we know that we're going to develop that, the suffering of Christ. But one element of that suffering is points us all the way to the ascension. If there was just the suffering on earth, and that was the end of it, there would be no salvation. For many thousands of people died on crosses under Roman reign. But yet we recognize that it was necessary. We think to the next step of his resurrection, we say, wow, what a powerful event. This is the power of God accepting the, the sacrifice and recognizing that um, it was a sinless one who died and thus gave him victory over death. And that is our victory over death 
and you would be correct. It is a necessary element. It is a powerful one. It is the power of God, and, and Paul talks about that later on, Philippians chapter 3, if we had kept reading after chapter 2, the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his suffering. And that connection is certainly there. There is an absolute necessity of his resurrection. Do not doubt that. But if those two elements had been the conclusion of the gospel message, we would be pitiful. For it had to be applied in heavenly places for us to have a heavenly hope. And thus Christ ascended into heaven. And it was during that time period, and I would conclude that it took seven days for the process that we just read in Revelation chapter 5 to occur. that it is his arrival into heaven to take this authority that Peter talks about here in, in, in 1 Peter 3.22, that he receives the authority, that he takes that place, that his sacrifice is accepted, that the songs are changed in heaven, the redemption for man is now applied where it really matters. And that is in heaven. That's where it needed to be applied. I have had people uh, have strange ideas that, well, somehow that the physical blood of Christ had to drip off the cross and work its way down to somewhere in a, in a uh, cave or a space, somewhere underneath there that some of it dropped on the mercy seat of the, of the Ark of the Covenant that was down there. I mean, people come up with all this crazy stuff about what actually has to happen on earth. None of that matters. Where Christ's blood splattered throughout Jerusalem from the praetorium where he was beaten to the place where he was crucified, every drop of that is not the critical question. The critical question is, was it applied in heavenly places, in the tabernacle not made with human hands, in the, in the throne room of God not built out of gopher wood and overlaid with gold? but the one with purest elements, the crystal throne. That's where it matters. And we can imagine all these other things on earth, and we can walk around Jerusalem and say, I wonder if Jesus' blood was spilled here or there. And, and we would be just demonstrating our foolishness to think that what happened with, with the here is that important. It is what happens there that was it. That's where the new song happened. And for those seven days of waiting, or ten days, however long that was, uh, of waiting, uh, we recognize that, that Jesus wasn't just twiddling his fingers, that he was active and el up in heaven. And when he says, I go and prepare a place for you, um, he's not up there having a construction project, okay? That's not what he's talking about, um, you know, you know, it's not like the Bahamas. It takes us like 15 years to build this thing, and we're still not even close to being done. And it's like, is it? my wife says, this is never going to be done, is it? And I was like, well, if the Lord comes back, it won't. Uh, that's plan A is for it never to be done. But uh, plan B is, yes, to finish it. But uh, God isn't, and I hear people say, well, he's going to prepare a place for us. He's been building on that thing for 2,000 years, and, and what a wonderful place it's going to be. Um, the new heaven, new earth is going to be by God's fiat creation, okay? He created all of this in six days. I don't think he needed 2,000 years to build you a mansion in heaven. 
and it's technically not a mansion, it's a dwelling place. What he is saying is, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going up there. What is that preparation he's talking about? It is not a physical building that he is building. It is a place. He is making the application of his sacrifice and the power of the resurrection to bear where it matters so that we have a place in heaven. He is the foundation of that place. And what we read in Revelation 5 and that wonder of, of we go from weeping over the fact that, that there is something that can't be done in heaven, that there is no place for the redeemed yet. There is no dwelling there. There is no home there. Where are they at? They are down there in, in Hades, uh, in the side of Hades called Abraham's bosom. They're in a place called paradise. They are there and they are captive until... Christ sets them free. They didn't go from death to the presence of Christ because a place hadn't been made yet because the blood had to be applied there. And this is what the ascension means, that Christ went to heaven and applied his work where it mattered, which was there. You know, we could talk about the temple curtain being torn from top to bottom and now we have access to the holy place and the holy holies and that was symbolic and it was important but it was only symbolic what that represents is that Jesus Christ went to heaven and tore the barrier between you and God between me and God so that we could have direct access to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit and the, and the interpretive work of the Holy Spirit, we are given that access, and it is a wondrous thing. And so we know that all these elements on earth uh, point to us uh, and, and instruct us about what's going on in heaven. And it is uh, a sad condition for the church to be kind of oblivious of that in our calendar that there should be seven days that we are considering from Christ's ascension the power of the application of his sacrifice. We are, we are ready to celebrate his death and his resurrection, but we don't really, we don't even know. We don't even acknowledge it, and most of us are oblivious that, well, this is the ascension day. This is ascension day. And that should be precious to us because that's when it was finished. That's when it's, when it's ready to be applied. That's when it's been put into heaven and our salvation, our place has been made for us. And for those seven days, then the coming of the Holy Spirit, for those seven days we should, be, we should be honoring and considering and meditating on the work of Christ in heaven on our behalf. So what does that mean for us, that Christ is in heaven? Well, those passages that we read in Colossians and, and Philippians talk about its application to our life, and Hebrews as well talks about it. Um, you know what? I'm going to read that. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm sorry. I should have just included it. Shame on me for ever thinking that reading God's word is not enough time for that. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and 
finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate, not sons. We find that Jesus Christ, and it's interesting because here the author of Hebrews even skips the resurrection. He talks about Jesus' suffering. He suffered on the cross and was glad to do so because he looked at our salvation as, as worthwhile of his suffering. And it skips even the resurrection and goes directly to he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean for me? These passages and many others tell us this should, is a driving force of the Christian life. We have something waiting for us. That, this, that our mind should not be on the things below, but on the things above. And that we should not be seeking to satisfy these fleshly elements of our life, but recognize we put them to death, that we, that we want to engage in and we want to develop and we want to satisfy these spiritual elements of this new life in Jesus Christ and we have help to do that. We have the helper in us to do that if we are truly his. And one of the evidences of the helper's presence and the true commitment of our life to him, believe it or not, is suffering. Not just because Peter says so, author of Hebrews does, over and over again, you should be ready to humble yourself, you should be willing to receive chasing, you should be willing to have the world hate you, you should be willing to endure all these things, even to the shedding of your blood, Hebrews says. Why? Because you have a heavenly home. Now, most of us treat our heavenly home as kind of a vacation cabin, not our permanent dwelling. That's how we usually think about it. My wife's family used to, I, I don't know, they might still... Uh, they go to Sunset Beach, and they would rent beach houses for, I don't know, one week, two weeks, three weeks, however long they were there. We never went more than a week, but we would go down there oh, every third year or so, and we'd have this beach home, and it was surreal, you know, because, you know, you get to go into somebody else's house, and you live there for a week, you get to walk away, and you're on vacation, you don't have to work, you don't have to do all these things, and, uh, and you know, it's a beach house. That's many ways how we treat our concept of heaven that it's not real, it's surreal. And we think of heaven as kind of our vacation house and all of what we own on this earth as somehow real. But for the Christian, that isn't, shouldn't be our perspective. If we really understand heaven, we understand that is my home, this is just my temporary prison house. <laughs> <laughs> and the flesh that we're carrying around is kind of like our little monitoring ankle bracelet. You know, we're, yeah, we're, we're prison, prisoners here, waiting to be released and head to heaven to take off.
Oh, that we would understand our heavenly home, where God, Jesus Christ, has prepared a place for us. This is our dwelling place. This is our place of rest. And certainly, um, there is that release of the weight of sin and the, and the stresses of life and uh, of this life, of this earth, of this flesh. Uh, certainly, all that we anticipate But in our daily living, we don't often set our mind on things above. That's my residence. That's my nationality. That is my home. And so we talk about people going home. My home going. And that's not just a turn of phrase to make us feel better. That is a a mental a reminder that this is not my home, that is my home, because Christ has gone there and has made a place for me. He did that by being put in, highly exalted it says, being put in the place of authority, of power. And so we have this authority by which Christ puts us into this inner access to the heavenly realm as our home. How ought we live if heaven is our home? By the end of Philippians, Paul says, listen, um, what you're doing here is making deposits into a heavenly bank account. Not what you're spending on yourselves, but what you're spending on the work of the Lord. And we all know the difference, I think. We all can recognize that which I do for myself in this flesh and that which I do for the Lord. And I'm not just saying, uh, and, and by the way, going to work and being able to feed your family is an instruction from God. You can also be doing that to the Lord if you have a right perspective. If you're just doing that to, to uh, have a more comfortable life and it's, and it's a priority of your, of your philosophy of life, it takes priority over relationships, over your walk with God, over all these things, to have a bigger bank account, to, have, uh, to raise your standard of living, uh, if that's... Uh, your goal and your purpose and all that, then you're not doing it to the Lord. You're doing it for yourself. But if your work is, is uh, in obedience to God's word, it is to supply the essential needs of your family and then have sufficient to share with others, uh, then uh, it is to the Lord. And so yes, what you do during, during the week uh, can be part of that work into our heavenly bank account. Uh, that uh, being stored up. And it's kind of interesting in, in Revelation chapter 5 that one of the things that we see is preserved in heaven, one of the commodities of heaven. Think about that. This is a commodity of heaven is the prayers of the saints. Now, we're all about um, cryptocurrency, right? That's the big thing. You know, Bitcoin, all those other cryptocurrencies. Are you into Cryptocurrency. I am into the, the, the longest-running cryptocurrency known to man, and it's called prayer. But the prayers of the saints are bankrolled in heaven. We think prayer is just about today. But there are prayers that God is holding on to, and he's waiting for that time to just, poof, release them. This is, Revelation 5 isn't the only place it talks about that. If you go a couple chapters later, the prayers of the saints are used again to move God toward wrath. 
The prayers of the saints are used to glorify Christ in that event, but the prayers of the saints are also used to move God to wrath in the uh, seven years of God's wrath, in the trumpet judgments. The prayers of the saints are the currency of heaven. Are we doing the work of the Lord? And prayers that work among them, that we ought to be people of prayer. Why? Because our, our mind is on things above, not on the things on the earth. And so part of that prayer is, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, our home. That you are our king, you are the commander, you, we are your ambassadors here, and our prayer is that your will would be done in my life here on earth as if I were already in heaven, where, which is my home. That is where my citizenship is, that is where my loyalties lay, that is where my hope is established, and so I pray that prayer. I want to do your will today, Lord. I want to glorify your name today, Lord, and not just my own interests. And sometimes it's going to take you into some strange territory. You don't believe me, I would invite you to consider the life of Christ, who did the will of the Father. And that took him to some strange territory occasionally, didn't it? Um, to have to cleanse the temple. Is this the will of God to go out there and make a, make a can of nine tails and start cleaning them out? Sometimes that's the will of God. Jesus Christ did it. You've made my house a den of thieves. We've got a clean house. But it's that whole attitude, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And in Colossians, it tells you, you spend enough time on yourself, and not just Colossians, many other places. You spend enough time uh, in Galatians of, the, of living the life of the flesh, of the Gentiles. You spend enough time doing all that. Uh, it's time now to live as citizens of heaven above, with a new authority. Now, the authority we are concerned about is not... The local authority, it's not the state, international, national, international. The authority that we are concerned about as ambassadors here, that while we try to live at peace with all men and, and respectfully there, uh, this is their home, it's not our home. The authority we're concerned about is Jesus Christ. Go back with me to 1 Peter 3.22. He's gone into heaven. It's not just his presence there. It's not just the application of his provision those two are very necessary, but there is a third element. That is that he is at the throne. He is seated at the throne. He has taken the place of authority. So not only is he there, great. Now his provision is there, even better. But even more than that, his authority is established there. And that is the authority by which we come to God and call him Father. Father. We cry out to him like Jesus Christ, Abba, Father. By the authority of Jesus Christ, that he is now on the throne and that he has made us joint heirs with him. That is, that we are united with him and so we have this, this sharing in this place that he is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. 
And, so if, and we saw that. We saw them all bowing down to him in Revelation 5. We saw the, the 24 elders, the living creatures, the, he, the heavenly host, the numbers of thousands and ten thousands of thousands. They all bowed down to him. Those are what Peter's talking about here when he talks about the authorities and the angels and the powers all in heaven. And by that authority, he sends the Holy Spirit upon us, and we have this wonderful power of God in this person residing here uh, based upon the authority that sent him to do this work. And remember, we said they're interdependent. So Jesus Christ needed the Spirit to do his ministry, needed the Spirit for the resurrection, and now when he ascends to heaven by his authority in that place, he now sends a spirit of power upon us to do his will. Not to do what pleases you, but what pleases him. And so now the son is in, on the throne and he sends the spirit with a commission, with a, with a purpose, and that is go down and fill those who follow me, my disciples, and empower them. Illuminate them, encourage them, comfort them. This is all premised upon that authority that is given to Christ in heaven, that rulership. And if he rules in heaven, he ought to rule in our lives. How do I know that you're really thinking of heaven as your home? The more Christ rules in your life here. I can recognize it. Your mind isn't set on earthly things, but on things above. So we seek opportunities to minister the gospel. We seek opportunities to exercise our faith, to walk by faith and not by sight. And we are reminded of scripture after scripture. It tells us to stand. Stand fast. In the midst of it, with great threatening, and Peter has definitely has threatening on his mind that you're going to suffer. The writer of Hebrews has threatening on his mind, you're going to suffer. Stand fast. That means not wavering. I'm going to stand my ground, but I'm kind of shaking while I'm doing it. It says just stand fast. You have the authority of Christ's heavenly throne he is your king of kings. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is your king, your lord. We stand fast knowing that nothing Satan can throw at us is comparable to the authority of Christ for all powers, all authorities, all angels have bowed to him. Satan has been cast out of heaven by the power of Christ. We could also read Revelation 12 and that account of the impact of Christ's arrival in heaven on the Satan and the, and the demons. We saw a glimmer of it here on earth with his power over the demonic, but nothing compared to when he arrives in heaven and receives all power and authority. And so we stand ready to Endure whatever is necessary to endure, not as weaklings, not as warriors, not as, uh, as though we're going to barely endure this, but rather um, with a fastidiousness 
we cannot be moved. And that the frustration is not on our part. (laughs) The fear is not on our part, but it is the frustration and fear of those who are trying to make us waver. And they can't. He just won't move. Not because he's stubborn, because he's confident in his home. If you know the king has given you a directive, and you know that the end of that directive is your eternal reward, you're going to keep the directive. And this Christ says, you confess me on earth, I'll confess you in heaven. Wow. We're not talking about uh, an advocate in a courtroom. We're talking about the judge of all the earth. Not just a lawyer saying this is a good guy. The judge saying, this is my child. The king of kings confessing my name in heavenly places. Because I am going to confess him on earth. And I will not disavow him, stand fast in righteousness. We already talked about that in this passage. We're going to stand in righteousness. We're going to stand in the truth because we have a heavenly home, because Christ is above and in a place of power, the place of power and authority. And hence, the completion of our salvation in Romans, it talks about who he is called, he's justified, sanctified, but he also says he is glorified. Past tense. Because as you find yourself identifying with Christ to that degree that, the, this, that any suffering on earth, no matter how severe from a human perspective that suffering is, and remember what Peter knew what he was going to have to suffer. Christ told him ahead of time. No matter how severe that suffering is on earth, um, it is nothing compared to what we are waiting for in heaven. We endure it joyfully and are immovable. Because we have a wondrous hope, a sure hope of one in power in heaven waiting to grant us <laughs> our reward. And this should move us in ministry. In my study of Scripture, especially of prophetic Scripture, I find that one of the most important things believers need to do at the end times is to stand. Endure. Endure to the end. Um, it almost is the most powerful testimony of the church. More so than our preaching is our standing in the end times. Uh, It is very evident from Scripture that people will be more and more and more resistant to the truth. Um, And uh, you see that in a lot of other passages. Uh, I see it a lot in, in Hosea. I see it in the Psalms. Uh, and, and we see this resistance to the truth and, um, of the preaching. And you saw it 
um, in Israel with the prophets going out, and they just wouldn't listen. And you got to keep preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching, and they won't listen. But well, you got to keep preaching it to them. Uh, but it's when they took a stand, when it cost them, when Jeremiah's thrown in a pit, and well, maybe he's serious about this stuff. When Daniel's thrown in a lion's den, well, maybe he's serious about this stuff, that sometimes it's the standing that speaks louder than our words. Are we ready to stand? And that's what the right of Colossians and Peter here in 1 Peter and Paul and Corinthians, I mean, over and over, then the writer of Hebrews, are you ready to stand? And that let that be your greatest testimony is that we stood unwaveringly for the truth of Jesus Christ, for righteousness, for the kingdom of God, that his will would be done in my life, no matter the cost. Rightly in Second Peter, is Peter going to say, are you ready to take up your cross and follow him? Peter was, and he's writing to the church saying, this is what you need to understand to be able to do this, that Christ suffered. He rose again by the power of the Spirit that is in you. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you now, in the person of Jesus Christ, of Holy Spirit, sorry. But that he also rose, he not only rose again, but he also ascended to heaven. And that's where the authority comes from, to stand fast. If I have authority to stand, I have a very different kind of stand, don't you? Than if you're doing it by your own commission. I just choose to stand, your own stubbornness. But if you have the authority of the king behind you to stand, you have the authority to stand. Stand unwaveringly. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And thank you again for your death, burial, resurrection, and your ascension by which we are granted so much, a place in your presence, forgiveness of sin, access to the Holy One, and the power and authority to stand, your presence of your Spirit within us. Lord, we thank you for so much that you have returned to the Father. We have benefited so greatly and will only benefit more and more. Lord, help us in these days to stand fast, to walk in your truth, and in righteousness as we see your day approaching. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.